Welcome to the Recovery Lab podcast. We're glad you were able to join us. Recovery Lab hopes to destigmatize addiction and normalize recovery. Our platform provides an avenue to share the many stories of those that have recovered from addiction, providing for the listener the most basic antidote to addiction. Hope. I wish y'all could see Daniel dancing over here. <laughs> Our intro music is good. All right, everybody, uh, we're back. This is the Recovery Lab podcast series. I'm Drew Hassan. I'm Daniel Anderson. We are the Recovery Lab. Uh, this is episode number 68. 68. 68. Boy, do we have a treat. We have a, we're joined today by a genuine local celebrity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A pioneer, absolutely. a giant no. in the addiction community. Absolutely. Okay, so... Um, without further ado. Without further read, ado. Read the intro. This is what we've got today. This is the character that we've got on our program today. Christina Dent. Christina Dent. Christina Dent. She is the founder and president of End It For Good. Um End It For Good is a nonprofit based in Mississippi that invites people to support approaches to drug that prior to drugs that prioritize prioritize life and the opportunity to thrive. She supported a criminal justice approach to drugs until her experiences as a foster parent sparked curiosity about the drug policy about drug policy. She changed her mind in favor of legalization after becoming convinced it led to outcomes that reduced harm, better, better aligning with her conservative Christian values. Christina presented the research and experiences that changed her mind in a TEDx talk that, by the way, was incredible. It's fantastic. Incredible. Uh, and went on to found uh, End It For Good. She was born and raised in Mississippi and continues to make her home there with her husband and three sons. Her passion for ending a criminal justice approach to drugs stems from the same passion that led her to foster care. She deserves, she desires to see individuals and communities thrive. So thank you so much for being willing to join us here today. Um, the I just have to start. The, the TED talk was just insanely, insanely beautiful, informative, informative interesting. Yes, very succinct. It, absolutely, all of the good things. Thanks. Absolutely. So, one th okay. What I want to start off with is uh, very often for those that are not alcoholics or drug addicts themselves, when they see someone, you spoke about it on your TED talks, uh, TED. Uh, so when when you see some or when people that perhaps are like you see someone that are, you know, underneath the bridge or, you know, using actively while they're pregnant, you know, your first thought was, okay, this person does not love their child. Like there is an absence of love in this relationship. And I don't know, were you, did you judge them at all a little bit? Was there a little bit of judgment there or what, what was that like when, before you kind of had your awakening and, Oh, your aha moment. What was that like for you when you first saw someone that was obviously in the grips of, of drug addiction or alcoholism? Um, yeah, that definitely not a, a little bit of judgment and <laughs> okay. a lot of all judgment. Right. Um, yeah, I, so I didn't grow up with, first of all, thanks for having me on. This is really fun. Oh, thank you. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I had no context for understanding addiction growing up. I didn't have it in my family. Um, and in many ways, I'm very thankful for that, of course. But I also just had no connection point to it, really positive or negative. So I just built what I thought based on what society told me. What Nancy Reagan and, said. Yeah. And so I, I didn't have any interest in using drugs. It wasn't like drug use was not around me in high school. I was homeschooled, you know, through high school, which certainly doesn't mean that you're not exposed. Um, but for me, I was not. I mean, I really kind of lived in this little bubble. And so. And then you got your degree in, in Bible. Right. Is that right? Bible. <laughs> you know, I was not, out, you know, using drugs on the weekends or either. Um, and so, yeah, I just had no context for it. And, what I built then was just whatever I picked up 
And what I picked up from the world around me was people who use drugs are bad people. Moral failure. And yeah, mm-hmm. yes. And if you become addicted to them, I had no understanding how addiction works. So if you become addicted to them, like you are sort of extra bad. It's kind of, there's the bad people that are using. And then if it gets, like the worse it gets, the worse you are. Yeah. So when I would see, let's say somebody um, who was homeless and maybe that was, you know, related to an addiction that had kind of taken everything from them. The way I understood that was sort of this scale of moral failure. This is a really bad person versus the way I see it now. This is a deeply hurting person. And so that did not change for me until I was in my early 30s. I mean, I I really, um, I know for people who have been in active addiction or in recovery now, all of us tend to think like surely the world is sort of learning the same things we are at the same rate. And they're just not most people. If you aren't connected to it in some way, you're not learning uh, in the same things that other people are. So I really was never exposed to this idea of connection being part or the lack thereof being a part of addiction. Childhood trauma had no context for that at all. So when I became a foster mom, my husband and I became foster parents when I was in my early 30s. That um, I still brought that into that role and really no training in in foster no foster parent training prepared me for anything related to addiction what it did give me which was the first piece is it taught me about childhood trauma and I never knew about that it was not through the training that we were mandatorily (laughs) required to take it was through a conference that a foster parent friend of mine said um, I went and asked her like okay we're becoming foster parents like what do we need to do and she said I would not foster without attending the empowered to connect conference and it was coming up in Birmingham and so my husband and I took the weekend we went to the conference so glad that we did I would tell anyone that today what is that called it's called empowered to connect and what did Um, you learn I so that was the first time I learned like oh our behaviors are there's things behind them for children who have come out of traumatic situations, the behaviors that we think of as being a bad kid are really driven by all of these things that have happened to them. The trauma they've been through, the way that they maybe have not been given the tools to be able to process that trauma, to be able to begin healing from that trauma. And really that journey is a lifelong journey. So expecting a child who's seven or eight to have the tools that they need to be able to Uh, overcome significant adversity in their life is just completely unrealistic. So understanding, oh, this uh, people's behavior, children's behavior is deeply impacted by the experiences that they have. So then I began thinking about, well, that also means, I mean, children just grew up to be adults. All of us used to be kids and we don't, there's not something magical that changes in us when we turn 18 or 21 that suddenly is like, oh, I didn't, I didn't know how to process my life. And now suddenly I do and I'm all better. Yeah, and I'm, all re- I'm reminded of that, that line, you know, uh, the child is the father of the man. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, yeah. Oh, that's good. I've never heard that. But. Oh yeah. You know about how, yes. what, you know, what affects us as a child, the child is the father of the man yeah. and you know, sticks it, with us. it sticks with us. Yes. So when I, when we became foster parents, um, the first, uh, it was our second placement, but really the first time that we had contact with the family members, uh, the birth mom of our foster son. And so, um, the, the baby came to us straight from the hospital, Becca is his name, and he had been removed from his mom's custody because she used drugs while she was pregnant. And in Mississippi, that's pretty much an automatic removal. If they can figure out that you were using drugs while you were pregnant, your baby is going to be put in foster care and you can try to you know overcome overcome that. that and regain custody of them and so he came to our house um, straight from the hospital and he was there for a couple of days and then he had his first visit with his birth mom Joanne and um, I took him to that first visit with her at the child welfare office um, north of Jackson and I still had that very incomplete understanding, really no understanding about addiction, but some understanding now of, of childhood trauma and adversity. And so I, I brought him to that visit. And in my mind, I'm still thinking I'm the best place for this child to be. She's a bad because, person. Yeah. Right? And I, so it, it's not 
it's not that she had, um, it's just that I, it, I took everything that I had thought previously into that, which is just what we do until we're confronted with something that challenges the way that we think we just sort of keep operating out of whatever it is we've built, however right or wrong that that way of thinking is. So I went into that and there was certainly parts of me that wanted to support this relationship. Um, Joanne will say one of the things that meant the most to her on this whole scenario is that I asked her whether or not she wanted me to, whether or not I, she wanted me to give Beckham a pacifier. This sticks out in her mind. As, oh, inclusion and yes, involvement and yes. her opinion is valuable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see yes. how that would invalid. be valid. Yeah. Yes. And so um, so I had done that, but the, it, I still had this very negative perception. It was kind of like this is, I know as a foster parent, I, am, I need to be for reunification. The, the social worker had told me when she brought back him to us, like his mom wants to get him back. She wants to be separated from him for as little time as possible. And so I, I knew that and I thought, okay, what are, what are the things I can do that are positive to kind of be part of this role? But I really, most of my heart was very much stuck in this, um, keep her at arm's length, not trustworthy because the messaging about addiction from our culture is so strong and so stigmatized. I don't even know that I really, understood like recovery I don't I just didn't have any context for that I didn't really know people that talked about that openly and so I brought Beckham to his first visit with Joanne at the local child welfare office and popped him out of my the car seat in my car turned around in the parking lot and, and here comes this woman running across the parking lot towards me weeping she runs over and just starts talking to Beckham while I'm holding him in this car seat like just really kind of dumbstruck. Like, I don't understand what's going on here. Yeah, this is yeah. very not what I was It's expecting. contrary to what you're, right. yes, your thoughts are. Yes. And really, you know, when I think about, I have three sons and thinking about. Biological or adopted? Um, two of them are biological and one is adopted. Okay. So, um, you know, when I think about the vulnerability of, of other people seeing how much you love your child. I mean, even our own pride kind of, you know, we want, we don't want to be um, kind of laid bare. We don't want our deepest feelings to be seen by other people. Sure. And here is this woman who is laying it bare, just being so vulnerable about her love for her son. Just that, you know, it kind of reminds me of the Bible of like the father who comes running to meet his son, who is, you know, the prodigal son who has left the family and comes back. And just that, that openness of love, that, that just um, overflowing vulnerability of showing that. And I, I felt really uncomfortable with that. I thought, you know, this can't be real. This is like a show somehow, you know, maybe to get me to put a good word in with the social worker. So she spends her one hour of visitation with Beckham. I spend an hour at the park with my other kids. And I come back to pick him up. And I will never forget the picture in my mind of turning the corner into that little tiny visitation room. And there is Joanne sitting on this couch. The room is so small, the couch spans an entire wall of the room. Like it's just a tiny little box. And she's sitting in the corner with Beckham up on her shoulder. And he's sleeping. And she's just sitting there with her eyes closed. She's not on her phone. She's not sleeping herself. She just really is drinking in every moment that she gets to spend with her son. And then I take her son back to my house. She goes to inpatient drug treatment. But she calls me from treatment. We had agreed that she could call me once a day and get updates on him. And she would call me every day and... I would try to think up something to tell her because newborns don't do anything. Yeah. <laughs> they eat and sleep and that's He's about still it. here. Right. And she would say, can you put me on speakerphone? And I would do that. And she would sing to him over the phone. And being let in on that level of vulnerability that you have a mom who can't be with her child, but instead of protecting her pride... And just saying, I'm glad he's doing okay. 
she takes the one opportunity that there is to connect with him, for him to hear her voice, for to do the thing that she would do if she was with him. And she lets me in on that. Or as a stranger, she doesn't know me. And that just began to change me. Because the more I got to know Joanne, I could not see anything other than the truth, which is she is a mom who deeply loves her son just as much as I love my sons. And that for me was very unsettling because it meant a lot of other things that I had thought were not true because this whole belief system of bad people doing bad things, that's not what I was seeing with Joanne. I was seeing a mom who deeply loved her child and was struggling with this really complex health crisis. And she had been using drugs for 20 years at this point. So Mm. this was not recent. This had been a a lifelong struggle for her since her early teenage years. And that really started me on this journey of learning, of trying to put aside everything I thought I knew and starting from scratch and saying, what is true about drug use and addiction? Um, And that opened this whole new world to me that ended up changing my mind about a whole host of things related to drugs and how we treat them, people who are using them, and what the path forward could be that could really reduce harm. Yeah, wh- real quick, what one thing that is absolutely incredibly beautiful to me is there's, there's a fork in the road there that uh, many people don't choose to go your route. Many people just stay stuck in their ways and say, you know what, these people are bad people. They're doing bad things. I don't want anything to do with them. That is the way that a lot of people go. It's getting a lot better now. Uh, the stigma is is being decreased drastically and, and, and fairly aggressively. But there is still that mindset that, well, that person's doing dope and they're bad people. If they were good people, they would love themselves. They would not do something to harm themselves. But instead, God placed these this experience, this, this foster experience in your life. And you, it sounds like you listened to God and you watched God. And I I feel like God was saying he was tugging on you. Like, listen, you know, let's go this way and, you know, look into exactly why you're feeling this way and deep and dive deep into it to identify what this core issue is that I think negatively about these people. And, you you listened and you trusted God and you opened that door for to 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 be informed and you came to the you came to the topic with a, a with an open heart instead of this closed mind like this person's a bad person so kudos to you for for listening to God and and for to to be willing to see something a little bit different than differently than than other people a lot of people don't do that. And so I feel like you are, you know, you're, you're kind of leading the way and, and, and bridging the gap between those of us who are in recovery and have experienced extensively the, the, the trials and tribulations that drug addiction and alcoholism bring, uh, with also the, the other side of the people that, that have no experience. And that's, it's not because they're, we're better than them. They're better than us. It's just, that's their path. That's their, they didn't, you know, there was not a chemical imbalance in their head that they thought that drugs and alcohol, you thought that drugs and alcohol would be a solution to you. Um, so thank you for bridging the gap there. Sorry to cut you off, Drew. Well, well I'll just say, too, I'll, I'm going to credit God with that. Sure. I'm going to credit Joanne with that. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I feel like she was the one that showed me that, like, she was exhibiting this incredible vulnerability right. and openness to a really difficult situation. And that really did just break something in me uh, and drew me towards that of just wanting to understand her. And I, I think if she would have held that close, if she would have kept me at arm's length, um, which is what I think I would have done in her situation, I think it would have allowed me to continue 
in the same way because it would have been more comfortable that way. I mean, this was, you know, if I had known how painful this would be at the beginning, as with most things in life, you know, if we knew how hard they were going to be before we started, we would never do them, you know. Absolutely. Um, And thankfully we don't. The good good things that we're able to be part of. And I, I feel that way about this, that I really feel like God used her to to draw me in past where I would have gone on my own because I was pretty happy with the way that I thought I had figured out the world. I mean, I'd, I I kind of thought I understood how everything worked. And to me, my life was like the example of that. See, you do all the right things. You check all the right boxes. You're a good girl, and it all works out for you. And so if you didn't do that, well, that's kind of your own fault, and now you've just got to, you know, live with your own consequences and she showed me this different path and it really changed my life well you know uh, and it it probably uh redemption is a certainly a christian hallmark and uh, overcoming is maybe it tapped into your sense of you know nobody's too far gone yeah There, there is a way out yeah, absolutely. Well, look, I I don't want to I don't want to run into a time crunch, but so out of this endeavor, the fostering Beckham, you challenge your innate beliefs about addiction and recovery and how people become addicted, and it leads you to founding End It for Good. Founding End It for Good. Tell us about End It for Good. Yeah, so we are a nonprofit, and I'll just. Uh, pause here to say my book just came out, which has kind of the full story. What's the name of that book? Yes. yes. How could we get a copy of that book? It's called Curious. Um, It's it's just my story. Starts when I'm nine years old, carries all the way through to today, through the founding of End It For Good. Um, Joanne is all through there. Other people in Mississippi are all through there. Their stories are included. It's a, it's a, it's a story. It's a memoir including other people's stories, um, and really takes you deep into the things we're talking about today and the things that we work on with End It For Good beyond just the destigmatization of addiction, but really how can we really reduce Rethinking some of these harms? Rethinking the, yes. the criminal justice approach, yes, yes. which and is really, really what where, some of the, a lot of the questions I have mm-hmm. for you. Yeah, so that's really where it led me was, first of all, to kind of begin to understand addiction, and then what broke my heart again was, oh my gosh, we were u- we're using the criminal justice system, which is a system designed to traumatize Punish. people. I mean, it is, it's supposed to be really painful for you so that you don't do whatever it is that you were doing again. So the more that I learned about the root causes of addiction and what people need in order to overcome it, the more it broke my heart that we're using jail and prison, more trauma to try to address a problem that is actually made worse by trauma. And that was the beginning for me of rethinking the use of the criminal justice system for something like drug possession, like a uh, crime, like drug possession. Should we really consider that to be a crime? But also just rethinking this whole big picture. The more I learned, the more kind of these other doors were open to me, thinking about the overdose crisis and why people are dying of overdoses at unprecedented rates, thinking about um, the cartels, gangs, the whole system of the underground drug market and how that operates and how we could decrease that amount of violence that's happening, not just in our own communities, but in countries around the world. <laughs> Somebody just sent me an article last week about like drug smuggling uh, gangs in this African country and it, this huge problem that it is. And so we kind of think about these things separately sometimes. We think about like addiction and recovery and we don't really connect that to like what's happening in Burkina Faso. Like that that's not really like right. on our radar. Right. But it's all connected because it is all related to the way the legal system handles drugs and people who choose to use them. So what do you say, real quick, what do you say to those that say, you know, one of the things that you guys are, you know, advocate for is decriminalization of drugs, right? Mm-hmm. So there's many, many people out there, I uh, used to be one of them, that was like, well, if you decriminalize it, that's going to make things worse, right? And there's no proof of this. There's This whole concept is silly. This is nonsense. If I would have been given every opportunity to use drugs, I would have used more drugs and, and I would have done more harm thing, harmful things. But 
there has been someone that has put this to the test. Tell us a little bit. It was Portugal, yes? Mm -hmm. yeah. Tell us a little bit about what Portugal did and also the reallocation of funds, the 90 to 10, mm -hmm. that they now experience. Tell us a little bit about <coughs> what that looks like in Portugal and, and how we could we could take that and apply that to, to America. And also, if you would, mention those statistics, the overdose statistics, and how those have been drastically reduced in Portugal as a result of this test. Tell us a little bit about that, if you would. Yeah, so Portugal in 2001, they decriminalized possession of drugs. So drugs are still illegal there in terms of you're not allowed to sell them legally. Or manufacture, Manufacture correct. legally, correct. They just addressed this kind of consumer category of people who are using drugs, and they decriminalized the possession of drugs. You are not arrested and put in jail anymore for possession of an illegal drug. And they did that because they studied kind of what could actually help this overdose crisis that they were experiencing at the time. And they realized, oh, if we switch to a health-centered approach to why people are using drugs, that could actually significantly help this problem. And so they shifted their drug funding. Um, they now use 90% of those uh, kind of their intervention money, drug intervention money for prevention and treatment and 10% of it on enforcement here in the United States, it's exactly the opposite. We use 90% on enforcement, 10% on prevention and treatment. And what they found over the course of, it's been almost 25 years now, their injection drug use rate dropped in half. Their addiction rates dropped by a third. Um, Drug-related crime went down. You think about property crime, like somebody stealing your petty lawnmower, theft, yeah. petty theft, mm -hmm. all of that. Eight out of 10 crimes that are that type of crime are are committed by people who are in active addiction trying to get enough money to feed their addiction. So right. you think about as your addiction rates decrease, all of those kind of related crimes, including prostitution, it's a big part of prostitution in many cases also, getting enough money for an addiction, um, all of those began to drop as well. So Portugal's a different size of country, different place, different culture, different healthcare system than the United States. But what we can take from that is it is not so much does their policy exactly mirror ours, does their culture exactly mirror ours. It's what was behind that policy, which is a shift in the way they think about the core issue. The core issue of people using drugs is not really the drug, it's not, and it's not going to be fixed by punishing them. So instead, they are helping people get jobs. They're giving tax breaks to businesses that will hire people, you know, coming out of prison or out of um, addiction treatment. They're, they're shifting from let's try to punish people into not using drugs. And now they're thinking, how can we help people build a life that they want to be fully present for? And that is the key, I think, for us to begin to address addiction in a more helpful way because not arresting people for possession of a drug, I think is a really positive thing, but it's only half of the equation. The other half is how do we build our society to help people find what they really long for, what this drug is filling for them at the yeah, time. I, I think the, the most beautiful part of what you just said is how, how can we help people build a life that they want to be fully present for? And right. You know, I, I think that he and I have both kind of been down this road, you know, um, the Johan Hari chasing the scream book was really impactful in my life and how I viewed addiction. And he certainly advocates for, I mean, he, he's, he's pro Portugal. And so we've kind of seen, we've had guys on the podcast who are absolutely anti what they call harm reduction, you know, I, and I just, I mean, I kind of want to get on board with a lot of the harm reduction stuff, but in Oregon, it does not appear to be working well. And I wonder if that's because they're failing to buttress this other component about how do we help people build a life that they appreciate and enjoy so much that they want to be fully present for, i.e. not high, instead of just everybody right. is shooting up. And everybody is getting clean needles and new crack pipes. And uh, because if you just open the floodgates, you're going to have more crime than you can shake a stick at. Because if you're not, if there's nothing to 
slow down your drug consumption, then it's going to skyrocket. And it can either be slowed down by you know, in being impacted by the criminal justice system, or it can be impacted by helping people build a life that they appreciate so much that they want to be fully present for. I mean, that really is... I wonder if Oregon is not doing a good job with that. Do you know anything about yes. the Oregon situation? Yeah, so they they allocated a lot of funding for more um, opportunities for treatment. They had one of the worst access to treatment kind of systems in the United States as far as states are concerned. But it took a long time for those funds to begin to flow for people to have more opportunities for treatment. And they don't have as many people accessing that as they want to have. And I think one of the keys to think about with Oregon, some of it is what's coming out of there is not um, necessarily accurate, depending on, you know, which, which news source you're watching they're going to pick sure, sure. you know whatever it is that don't they just talk about. just don't watch you can't only watch fox <laughs> but, but part of it is decriminalizing possession which is what oregon did so drugs are still not legal there you can't legally manufacture them or anything like that but not arresting people is only again half part half of, of the it. Compo- part yeah. of it but we have okay so you have to think about the other side of that if you if you don't arrest people we would say that's good because arresting generally makes life much harder for people. It does not fix their addiction. They can well, get drugs right. in jail. If it prison. was going to work, it would have worked a long yes. time ago. But think about the other half of that. If if we're upset with Oregon right now because they're no longer arresting people, what would happen if they just began arresting people again? Really what's happening for the community is that they don't have to see the problem anymore. It doesn't mean that the problem is actually being fixed in terms of addiction it's just cordoned off to it's just put in a in a prison somewhere where we don't have to see people who are struggling now there's also i think it's really important um to differentiate between drug possession and other crimes people commit including things like breaking other statutes public drug consumption things like that with alcohol we don't just say because alcohol is legal that you can do whatever you want. You can go be drunk. You can go do that in public. You drive can a go car. assault people. You can drive cars. No, we we make very clear distinctions between the choice you make for yourself and the responsibility to keep the rest of the community safe. And I think there is a, a um, when you talk about harm reduction, even for the people who support that, there is a sliding scale in terms of what people perceive that to mean. Is it just not proactively harming someone like arresting them or is it facilitating their drug use in some way or is it not arresting them for anything related to their drug use and we would say that is not appropriate that's not doing the other part which is caring for the community you can't just let anything happen and whatever goes and if it's petty theft you just kind of hold your hands off because it was related to addiction that's that is not justice for for people who are legitimately being harmed. I think that's important. Let me ask you this, and I'm, I'm not being smart-alecky at all. Do you think the government should oversee – I think you mentioned something in your TED Talk that triggered my thinking about this, about how with alcohol uh, there is a system in place to make sure that like you don't go blind from the moonshine, you know, from the still – should the, should the government involve itself in testing and approving the sale of drugs? Do you think that would have an impact for the net good or would it be to the net bad? I think this kind of goes back to what Daniel was talking about a minute ago on overdose and what's causing that. So, Well, it's fentanyl. We all know that. Yes, but why is it fentanyl? And well, what? why are people using drugs that look, are Look, I'm a delauded user. And I hung out with a lot of people that did a lot of Dilaudid, and zero of them overdosed. And I completely agree with you. As you chase away the legitimate pharmaceutical-grade drugs, I mean, you're going to make people do heroin. Yeah. Period. Yeah. And, and the underground market responds to that. Aggressively. By- with profit incentives. So if you think about, um, you know, alcohol, when you drink it at a sports stadium where it's prohibited on the inside, when you're tailgating, you're drinking beer. 
because that's what most people want to drink. If they can't drink it legally inside, they start drinking hard liquor. They're just responding to the incentives of prohibition, which are high potency so that there's less risk in smuggling it. And yeah, this, when, you, when you told that during the fentanyl. TED Talk, I was like, dang, that makes perfect yeah, sense. Pretty bingo right there. Yeah. <laughs> Think about fentanyl today. It's fentanyl today. You, We're going to sit down again 10 years from now. Y'all are going to be on like episode 745. <laughs> we're not going to be talking about fentanyl. We're probably going to be talking about nitazines. We're going to be talking about something else that's, you know, nitazines are like 20 times more potent than fentanyl. And they're being seen now in major cities. They probably are in much more places because we're not testing for them yet, by and large. So why is that? It's because you heard it here first, y'all. Yeah, nitazine is coming. Go look up nitazines. You'll find them. You'll find news stories about it. You'll find police talking about the problems of nitazines. And fentanyl is just the latest thing. It is the latest in a never-ending line of high-potency synthetic products that are being added to the drugs people use on the street and without quality control, which can only come through some sort of legal access where you can bring it back into a place that has quality control, which tax. is what alcohol has. Get that tax money. Well, you have yeah. to be able to make sure that what people are purchasing is not some random concoction that somebody came up with that's been cut 20 times by 20 different people on the supply chain. And the person at the end really doesn't have any idea what the potency or purity of that product that they're selling is. And the person who buys it sure doesn't know what the potency or purity of what they're buying is. So I think there is, particularly in the recovery community, more openness to the idea of decriminalization, of like, I understand, yes, that arresting people probably... For most people, is is a very negative experience, not a positive one. Tends to be a lot more pushback around the idea of moving markets back into legally regulated markets, like they used to be a hundred years ago before we started prohibition of other drugs. But when we think about the overdose crisis, which is the primary thing people are most concerned with fixing right now, because we're losing a hundred thousand people a year to overdose. You have to address prohibition because the overdose crisis is a feature of prohibition. It is, you've got 90% of people who die of an overdose now have fentanyl in their systems. This is the problem that we're grappling with. It is the fact that they're using things they don't know what's in it and they have no way to dose it appropriately. Mm -hmm. And I think most of the public doesn't realize that fentanyl is a medical grade pharmaceutical that's been used in hospitals for decades. My youngest son, when he was four, he hurt his finger very badly, got smashed in a door, had to Mm. get like sewn back together. We took him to the hospital. The nurse comes in, in the emergency room. And she says, Hey, you know, I've got some fentanyl. I'm going to give to him. It's going to help with the pain. Wait, what? Right. How do you, how do you give a four year old fentanyl? It's because it's appropriately dosed, and you can give him exactly the right amount to help with pain. But you put a forty year old man on the street who's buying whatever, and it's got fentanyl in it. There's no way to dose that appropriately, and you end up having somebody who passes away. It's not the problem with fentanyl. Isn't fentanyl? It's the unregulated nature of how people are getting it right now. And until we're willing to grapple with that force that caused fentanyl to be in drugs that are on the street, we're just going to continue to get fentanyl, then we're going to get nitazines. We already have xylazine in cities where it's causing like open, deep flesh wounds in people who use it. It's, I mean, horrific. I've heard about xylazine before. There was a guy, yes. was, well, this is kind of a war story. <laughs> I've heard of that one. Yeah, and, and, and that Wise is, decision. That's naloxone bad for you. It, you. If you overdose on xylazine, you know, naloxone cannot bring you back. It is, it, it doesn't oh, respond no to that. And wow. so we're continuing to get worse and worse additives to this underground drug supply. And the the path we've got to think about is how do you get people to stop using that? You can't Help them build a down. life that they want to be fully <laughs> there you go. And can we open some pathway for them to be able, maybe it's under the care of a doctor. And I know people have very negative feelings about doctors and opioids and things like that. Do you want someone under the care of a doctor or a drug dealer? Sure, there were some bad actors, doctors. Most of them 
are wonderful professionals who know far more about what is actually going to help you or harm you than some random person who's selling drugs on the street or some cartel who's just in it for the money. That's not where we're going to get good health outcomes to a health crisis. We Mm -hmm. need to bring it back. This is a health issue. We need to treat it like that again if we want to save lives. Well, to that point, um, this was, gosh, maybe like eight or nine years ago, I was watching a a program on TV on A&E or something uh, where they were uh, they were inter- interviewing uh, drug dealers, uh, right? They, you know, they infiltrated the the system and 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 they you know gained the trust of these high power drug dealers and were interviewing. Of course, the drug dealers had you know full face masks and everything like that to uh, you know so they didn't get found out. But one of the things that really stuck with me about that interview was. Um, these drug dealers, and this was right, you know, fentanyl was was very popular at this time, and the drug dealers knew that they packaged a a certain amount of uh, hot shots, what they would say. Uh, And what that would do, they would disperse these products throughout the community, and they, they would know that, you know, one out of every, you know, 15 to 20 baggies that they sent or that they sold was going to be fatal. And what they found out through market research was when someone passed away and they would, they would properly uh, identify and, and mark their baggies. So people knew. And when someone would die, they realized that the drug addicts around that person, and this is, counterintuitive, but they would find out that this person was using X drug and they died from it. And the drug addicts in active addiction would then run and try to purchase as much of that baggy product as possible because they knew that they would get super high. So this drug dealer knew that he was killing people and it was good for business. It was good for business. So is it... Is it better to have that person in charge of these drugs that are on the street? Or is it better to have someone that is trained to administer high potency medications, to, you know, to, to help people? Um, I, it, I don't know. It's I'm having a hard time thinking that it's better for the drug dealer to have have that control instead of a, of, of a trained professional. And I think it's important to... When we think about solutions, we're all, we all want the perfect solution. I mean, that is what drug prohibition is, is an attempt to find the perfect solution. It's an attempt to say, if we just make these drugs illegal, just, I mean, out of the gate, like, just ma- just ban them, they will go away. Mm-mm. If we imprison people, that's going to be so painful, nobody's going to risk it. Not to mention $67 million at least a year just to house those nonviolent drug yes. offenders. and so... So prohibition and criminalization are an attempt at that perfect solution, that we make it so bad that nobody's going to use drugs. And the reality is the the government's own numbers on illegal drug use are that one in 10 Americans has used an illegal drug recently. One in 10. Think about going to the grocery store, going to a ball game. One in 10. Everybody high. (laughs) Are accessing drugs on this massive underground market that is only funding criminal activity. You got to be engaged in crime to participate in the underground drug market. And the money that's going into it is, is not going into the the coffers that we want to going into. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So I think that's really hard. There's a big part, especially if your life has been destroyed by drugs, there's Mm -hmm. a part of you, I think that, that resonates with that. Like how can we just stop all of this harm? And so we have to be willing to look for the best Solution of a bunch of imperfect ones coming, you know, rolling back what we think is the right thing to do, rolling back slowly these policies of prohibition and criminalization is going to be a very painful process. We have to decide what kind of pain we want to deal with because it's going to be painful no matter what. Right now, we're losing 100,000 people a year. We have a massive underground market. We're loading thousands and thousands of people who are just in possession of a drug into prison every year. Do we want the problems that are associated with that 
all the deaths, all the crime, all the broken families? Or are we willing to deal with and work through the pain of rolling those policies to something else and and going through that learning process like states have with cannabis regulation. Right. Some states have done it and it has worked pretty well. Some states have done it and they've had a lot of learning pains from it. I, I still think it's definitely on the path to a better approach, um, but it's going to be a painful approach. But on the stigma front, I think this is really important to think about stigma. There's a, a of course, a huge movement in the recovery community to destigmatize addiction. It is impossible to destigmatize being a criminal. Like, and that our policies have made drug use and addiction and being a criminal synonymous. And as long as we continue to make them synonymous, as long as our policies say if you're using drugs, you are a criminal. Destigmatizing addiction is going to be impossible to do. And I think that's that's part of what we have to grapple with is the, the way we think about these things has been largely influenced by the laws that have governed these things. Why don't we think about addiction culturally for madness. as a health yeah. issue? We don't because we have not been told that. We have been told this is a criminal issue that law enforcement needs to be on rather than this is a really complex, heartbreaking health issue people are walking through and they need every tool in our tool belt to get them under the care of a doctor, a therapist, whoever can help them on this journey. That's not what we have been told. And until we begin to shift away from that, I think it's going to be really, really difficult for us to break that, that cycle. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, look, I think what, what you're doing here and, and the mere fact that you have, you have had such a fundamental shift in your own viewpoint. It gives me a lot of hope. It gives me a lot of hope that people are, you know, just because they feel one way one day doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, they're they're destined to be that way for the rest of their lives. And I think that you are you are causing some serious waves in this whole conversation. I'm just think about just the the sixty seven million. That's just in Mississippi alone, right? The the nonviolent uh, drug offenders. What would happen if the incarceration costs? Right. What would happen if if we took those sixty seven million dollars and 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 distributed that money to those that are in active addiction and need help? Right now, it's cheaper financially to stay high. Yeah. It just is. There is a treatment facility out in Brandon. And it's $30,000 a month, $30,000 a month. The people that are at their bottom, oftentimes $30,000 is a number that even with insurance, you know, it can be very, very high. That's unattainable. But going and getting some drugs from your man down the street, and using those drugs to numb and to, you know, fix whatever problem. Because uh, let's be honest, we use drugs because they worked. They feel good. They feel good and they numb. And that's oftentimes exactly what we need them to do. But there becomes a point where, hey, the drugs stop working. And now I'm left with this addiction that I can't stop. And, you know, no way out. And, you know, my only options are... You know, jails, institutions, or death. That's it. That's that's all we got. So, and and jails. You know, that's awful for for that person and the family. Institutions. The price for that, even at Region Eight, you got to pay. Like it's astronomical. It is cheaper to stay high now, psychologically, physio- physiologically, and, and physically. The 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 cost is much higher, but. In active addiction, I, I could have cared less about that. So, you know, I think what you're doing right here is is I mean, you are you are changing challenging those norms. Yeah, absolutely. So what 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 are you trying to achieve ultimately with end it for good? You know, what what is your uh if I get to this level, if I get to this point, I'm gonna feel 
really good about the the position of th- that I'm in. And what are your goals? What are your aspirations for this? It seems like the little that I know about you, um, you have a passion that is undeniable, and you have a passion for people like me. That you know, we we made not some, but a lot of poor life decisions. And drugs and alcohol were a part of that. Hold on. Right. And you don't hate me. And, you know, for someone that, for someone from coming from me, that's a, that's a big thing. And, and to know that you were kind of like the, you know, the, the Christian, you know, this person is evil. And now you're like, oh, wait, you know what? I've kind of, I've realized that, you know, maybe that's not the most effective way of, of looking and, and productive way of looking at things. Um, so what what are your goals and aspirations for end it for good specifically? What what are you grappling toward? What, yeah. what are you what are you trying to do? Yeah. So we hope to do two things. Um, one of those is we do want to see policy change happen. We think that's as much as we want to see culture change, which would be the second thing. So we want to see culture change happen in how we think about drugs, addiction, people who are using, um, and that can be every. Everybody from the person who is in active addiction, helping them have a a more true understanding of what's really going on in their lives. It's my experience. A lot of people in active addiction, they also have never learned about childhood trauma, what's really behind it. I mean, think about all the things we do that we really don't understand what's behind them. Why do we eat the third piece of chocolate cake? When we really don't want it, when we know it's not good for us, it's not even really tasting good anymore, it's doing something for us. But most of us don't have the self-knowledge of, you know, our, our deepest parts of ourselves to understand really all the behaviors that we have. So whether it's them, whether it's their family members who are struggling to understand, like, why is my loved one destroying their life? Like, this makes no sense to me. Right. And, or whether it's people like me who really aren't connected, but all of us contribute to culture. All of us contribute to the way that, we generally think about and respond to issues around us. And sure. so everybody has power to contribute to that culture making. So we want to shift culture. We also want to shift policy because um, no matter how much we think compassionately about addiction, as long as we continue loading people into prison who are struggling with it, I think we, we, we don't feel like that is success until we shift that approach towards the same way that we approach all other kinds of addictions. We don't put people who struggle with gambling addiction in jail. We don't put people who struggle with pornography addiction in jail. Alcohol addiction, you're only going to jail if you break one of those other laws, drinking and driving, things like that. Why do we treat the addiction to other drugs differently than we treat all these other addictions that can absolutely destroy people's lives and families and cause a lot of harm but we recognize that those are not criminal issues. This like a gambling addiction is not going to be fixed just because you put someone in jail for a year. Right. They're going to come back out. And unless they've dealt with the root cause of that addiction, Bingo. they're going to go right back to gambling, which is exactly what happens with people who are using drugs, except they can use them in jail too, because drugs are readily available in jails and prisons. The underground market operates everywhere. So we want to see those two things happen. Culture change, policy change. And that's a big part of why I wrote my book is I wanted to take what we had been doing, which is a lot of interviews like this or giving a presentation somewhere for 30 or 45 minutes and really give people a little deeper exposure to why we think these ideas that that seem kind of radical, they seem scary. Let's dive into them a little bit using stories and using research, but a really readable book to just help people dive a little bit deeper. I think one of the things that's meant the most to me since the book um, launched in November, um, a father came up to me and he had read the book and he um, has been walking with his son for 30 years through his son's addiction, Mm. 30 years. And he's in prison right now on a possession charge. And the son is. And the dad said, you know, one of the things that your book made me think about is it made me wonder about what was causing my son's addiction? Like what happened in his life that might have contributed to this long standing struggle with drugs? And then he went into 
some of the things that he knew about that his son has experienced as a child, the loss of his best friend in a horrible accident, uh, you know, bullying. Like, and, and now this dad, who is an elderly man, is really thinking for the first time about the depth of his son's addiction, not just the behaviors of it. And he's tried to walk with his son through all of those years. But really, like that, to me, that is a gift that if, if people can begin to look deeper and look for what you guys know, what's the reason? Those causation you know, factors. The, yeah, the drugs are not the problem. They are the solution. What's the real problem? What's the real thing that's going on in a person's life that is driving that need to numb and that need to change the way that they feel in such a dramatic way. Um, I hope that that's one of the things that the book does. Um, I think it has given people a a different way to think about these things. Um, And I think that's as painful as addiction is and as destructive as it can be, it's not going to be fixed just because we get angry with people who are struggling. Mm -hmm. Now, how could people get your book if they wanted to? Amazon. Amazon. Get it on Amazon. Yeah, I love it. Yep, it's called Curious. Um, And yeah, you can find it on there. It's just, it's my story. So if you're not a big reader, it's for you because it's short chapters. Every chapter starts with a story. It's very readable, um, page turner, and it'll get you thinking. And then you can come and discuss it because we're going to be hosting some virtual book clubs. Oh, that's great. And, I love that. Yeah. So come one, join us on enditforgood.com. Yeah, absolutely. Our newsletter and we'll send out all the uh, all the details on that too. One thing that I, I've got to note just about that last little bit about the father that's been walking with his son's addiction. And now he's finally taking a look at, you know, what the core issues are. It is, it's very difficult. And I am a father of a 16 year old and I'm, currently going through i'm i'm a, a bit in that man's position now um and the the temptation to psychoanalyze and 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 overanalyze that situation and and take that on as okay what did i do wrong mm. where did i fail what what did i do wrong and i have to battle that uh, a lot because you know, I was, you know, I, I was in active addiction for a long time, you know, and I am afraid and fearful that my, my active addiction is going to negatively affect. So for, you know, my son and, and those around me. So I think that, that getting to a point where you can identify, you know, and, and process without thinking about yourself yeah. and, and really look at, okay, th- let's look at this person right? Let's identify the issues that they're struggling with and, and not try to superimpose my fears mm-hmm. of, of yeah. being the problem onto this. And I think it's at that point, you can really begin to make some, some pretty serious headway in identifying and then helping those that are struggling. So if, if there's, we're about out of time, but how can, um, Tell us the name of the book one more time and how can people uh, get in touch with you, an email address, or uh, uh, and, and also how they can uh, get involved. And is 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 it a, is End It For Good a 5013C? Yep. Okay. So also how people can, uh, can, can help you out. Yeah. Enditforgood.com gets you to all the places. You can buy the book Curious. The um, subtitle of it is A Foster Mom's Discovery of an Unexpected Solution to Drugs and Addiction. You can find that on Amazon. Go on our website. We'll link it there. And I'll also give you guys um, one other resource. So it may be that people are not interested in reading a book. Maybe they just want to know, like, how do you talk about things like this that are very emotional for people? People tend to have very strong ideas about what we should do to fix these problems. Um, We developed a resource. It just has five things that we've learned. We've led 35 events across Mississippi hosting dialogue on these issues. And so if you text the word TALK to 601-299-4372, we will text you back this resource is just five keys to having productive conversations on polarizing topics. Hit that number one more time. 601 Two nine nine four three seven two, and you can get that. We have other resources on the website. Sign up for the newsletter, and it'll. We give you. I write those. It's kind of all different thoughts about what's happening and 
current events in this world. Um, and also just things like the book discussions that you can be part of on Curious, um, other resources. I know you guys had Lori McDougall on recently. Um, oh, we yeah. love the work they do at Allies in Recovery. That's just a, a part of this, like, the other side, not just stopping the wrong thing, but empowering the right thing. Building a, a life people that. want to be so, present for. Yeah, yeah, so come join us, enditforgood.com. Well, um, and oh, yeah, you can email me, Christina, at enditforgood.com. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Before we go, what happened with Beckham? Yes. Circle back. Yes. Tell us the... They are doing great. There we go. They are doing Happy great. Happy ending. Happy yes. ending. Joanne has been... Um, sober since Beckham was a baby and they have now built an incredible life that she wants to be present for. And uh, congratulations, Joanne. Yes, she's amazing. She is amazing. Um, She works at a drug court now. Uh, She's been working on opening a sober living home uh, specifically for a mom with children um, to give, we don't, we have very little access to that for parents of who are parenting at the time that they need sober living. Um, Beckham is seven now. He's just doing amazingly. He's we a love a drummer. we love a good story around. Here. Look oh, at God go. So Look, Joanne, if you want to come on the podcast, we're here for you. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Yes, have her on. She is she's incredible. She and and look, not every story ends that way. There are many people who go to treatment. Ten times. They don't and take the off ramp. You know, they're still struggling. It's it's no guarantee. The way that we want the world to approach drugs and addiction is no guarantee that you get an outcome like Joanne's. But the only reason she's not sitting in prison and she's raising her son is because she was able to avoid that arrest and instead get the help that she really needed to deal with those root causes and build this life. Well, thank you for being an advocate for Thank you for taking the time to come share with us. Thank you for having me. All the reasons we do the podcast, knowledgeable, exciting, interesting, beneficial. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us and listening to us. And uh, we will see you guys next week. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.